Hello, this is uh, Robert Salisbury, Chairman of Reaction, and I would like to welcome you to a special podcast with Robert Lisvane, Lord Lisvane, former Clerk of the House of Commons, and we're going to talk about Parliament and its role in the future of this country uh, in the light of Brexit and, uh, of course, in the light of devolution. We're very lucky to be here at number 67 Pall Mall, uh, and we are being lubricated in our conversation with a remarkable glass of claret provided very kindly by Terry, the head sommelier here, who is going to tell us, first of all, rather more importantly, about the wine that we're going to be drinking rather than the politics we're going to be talking. Welcome, Terry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I would like to welcome you from my side. Welcome to the 67 Pamal. Um, very glad to have you here. And um, I'm very pleased as well to um, have for you a, a 95 Satomuton Rothschild, um, which is, uh, of course, one of uh, the great growths of Bordeaux. It's the first growth uh, since 1973. And um, I think it's probably the most appropriate wine to speak about politics because Baron Philippe de Rothschild was uh, the innovative and pioneer uh, winemaker who changed the classification uh, in 1973 by upgrading uh, its wine to a first growth. Um, I think it's all, about, um, it's all about elegance and perfume and this exotic aspect of a, of a Poyac into your glasses. And I do hope uh, that you will enjoy it, and uh, it will bring um, a great aspect to your conversation. I'm sure it will, Terry. Thank you for that. You're uh, high quality lubrication clearly goes with high quality publication, <laughs> and that I think should be from now on a reaction tradition. I ought to tell you that uh, years and years ago, when I was a boy, I was staying with an uncle of mine in Scotland who wasn't a great drinker himself, but had inherited a very fine cellar. And he had Baron Philippe staying with him. And he took rather an Olympian view, Baron Philippe, of the savage Caledonia he was visiting. It was rather de haut en bas, I think it would be fair to say, uh, until my uncle produced a pre-Floxera claret. And from that moment on, his attitude changed utterly. <laughs> Robert, you're very welcome. Thank you for doing this. You and I, I think, first got to know each other when I was a neophyte MP of uh, an utter lack of distinction, and you were a promising and already distinguished clerk in the House of Commons. Uh, I think, if I remember right, your beard was a slightly different colour in those days. It, it was. It was a youthful um, black rather than a, a slightly uh, sere and aged white as it is now. Well, uh, um, <laughs> and you've been a clerk in the House Columns for a long time. 42 years altogether, and I've been down at the other end of the building for two years. Um, I spent three years as clerk of the House of Commons, 2011 to 2014. I was lucky enough to get one of the peerages, the two a year that the Prime Minister is able to uh, award for, um, their words not mine, meritorious public service. And I'm finding the, uh, the other chamber 
odd as it may be in some respects, <laughs> extremely liberating by comparison with my former life. Well, of course, you're not only allowed to comment, but encouraged to do so. Uh, that's one of the very liberating aspects <laughs> of it, I must say, and, and how pleasant and to be talking about this sort of thing in such convivial circumstances. Uh, I th can only say that a first-growth claret makes constitutional issues much more approachable. Well, as you and I know, we are collaborating at the moment with a group which is dedicated to exploring the ways in which the Constitution ought to be reformed. We think that this is a timely activity. Uh, perhaps we should extend this new habit to our deliberations uh, there. Uh, of course, Parliament is something you know an enormous amount about. How could you not after your career? Uh, but... Perhaps this is a particularly timely moment for us to think about it. Uh, the sovereignty of Parliament, uh, repatriation of control has been a theme of the Brexit debate and was one of the drivers of the Brexit vote to leave. Equally, we've had a sustained, perhaps you and I might feel rather higgledy-piggledy, series of constitutional reforms internally not just confined to devolution, but also to Parliament itself. Um, I'm thinking also of uh, rather rapid changes introduced, um, for instance, to the status of the Lord Chancellorship. Uh, perhaps now would be a good time for us to begin to consider uh, the question of the Institute of, Par institution of Parliament. We believe that it is our most important institution. Um, where it is now, uh, how it may possibly be made to work better uh, and um, uh, what is going to be the influence of Brexit and of devolution on those deliberations. Could I ask you, in the light of that, uh, we were taught, I think from Dicey onwards, weren't we, that the one immutable is that Parliament is sovereign. Do you think that's so? Well, Dicey and indeed my learned predecessor, um, Sir Thomas Erskine May, um, who wrote the first eight editions of the, uh, the great, it's often called the Parliamentary Bible, um, would recognize that and would probably, in theoretical terms, uh, endorse it even today. Uh, the power, said May, in the first edition of that work of Parliament is to make or unmake any law whatsoever. And that is certainly technically true. Now, I think you're absolutely right to bring in the question of all the things we were told during the referendum campaign. And it was all about bringing back control and Parliament making our own laws and parliamentary sovereignty being restored. Now, in narrow terms, perhaps dicey May terms, uh, of course, that sovereignty never went away. And the fact that Parliament is now on the road to repealing the European Communities Act 1972 demonstrates that, in narrow terms, parliamentary sovereignty is undiminished and unchanged. Of course, it is a little ironic, even embarrassing, that the courts had to be enlisted to tell us that parliamentary sovereignty extended to um, cover and to... Uh, um, uh, moderate the Prime Minister's power to trigger Article 50 and the start of negotiations to leave the European Union. Uh, but I think there are bigger questions now about how to uh, build on the uh, concept and I think also the perception of parliamentary sovereignty outside. Can we come back to that? Can I just check you for a moment on 
on what you've just said about a Parliament having to turn to the judges, or Mrs Miller, perhaps, having to turn to the judges. Because isn't it rather odd, if Parliament is sovereign, that Parliament need, and the government, need the judges to tell them that? Parliament really minded and felt it was sovereign. Couldn't it do it for itself? Parliament could do it for itself. Of course, within the parliamentary institution, the uh, initiating authority is almost always the government of the day. Parliament and parliaments all over the world are, um, they're not organisations, they're organisms. And as any biologist will tell you, organisms are cussed, unpredictable, but above all, they're reactive. And Parliament is reactive to the things that are put before it. There has always been, uh, even since the, and before, the, <laughs> emphatically before, the enacting of the Bill of Rights, 1688-89, there has been a tension between what Her Majesty's or His Majesty's, depending on the era, ministers can do without parliamentary authority and what requires legislation. And what the Miller case did was really to distill that tension in a way which before then would have been very difficult to resolve, but on which we now have some rather powerful case law. That's very interesting, because um, there's been, as you say, this tension between uh, what the king can do, the royal prerogative, and uh, with the decline in the power of the monarchy, increasingly that being taken over by the executive in the name of the crown. Um, and I think I'm right in saying that when there has been up till now, there has been a battle between the two. Uh, the prerogative has, on the whole, had to give way. It's a sort of, um, I suppose, an expression, practical expression of Dunning's motion. Um, and um, therefore, could you see this as along, perhaps, also with the question of whether the government can declare war, for example, without the consent of Parliament? as an extension of parliamentary power against the initiative power of the executive? Yes, I think one can, but I think it's been um, uh, parliament light in the sense that, for example, let's take the uh, issue of ratifying treaties. Now, there used to be an old rule called the Punsonby Rule after uh, a minister who was parliamentary undersecretary of state in, I think, about 1924, uh, that treaties could be laid upon the table and somebody could put down a motion not to ratify them. Now, that has now been incorporated in the uh, Constitutional Reform and Gover Governance Act 2010, and Section 20 of that Act lays down a procedure. But it's pretty milk and water mm. because it's still 21 days. Of course, you can't amend treaties because they are a, um, they are a given. Uh, the, it gives the House of Commons the whip hand in that... Uh, they have several goes, indeed, in theory, unlimited goes, mm. at refusing a treaty. The Lords, it's one shot and that's it. But I think that does illustrate how even when governments over the last uh, 10 or 15 years have sought to allow a parliamentary constraining mm. of the royal prerogative, it's been about a third of a loaf rather yes. than any more. Well, we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole there, but I think it's an interesting one, which perhaps if we were to have further conversations, we might explore further. Can we come back to the question of sovereignty? I think sovereignty is going to come under great scrutiny with the Brexit process. Because on the one hand, 
there will be a lot of people out there, not just leavers, but a lot of Remainers and a lot of members of both houses who will expect something which is a game changer. Now, I think there will be a game changer, but I think it might uh, involve invoking the law of unexpected and unforeseen consequences. Because what we're going to have to do, and what the government's white paper published just a few days ago foresees, is, one, preserving EU law at the point at which we leave, or at the point at which, uh, following the Article 50 negotiations, the post-Article 50... This is incorporating the whole corpus in one bill, and then, by implication, at our leisure, altering it once we've repatriated. The Great Repeal Bill. I'm not too sure about the word great. I think the Great Reform Bill was only called great after it had actually been enacted. So we'll we'll, we'll have to see. The jury may be out on that. But yes, that's the first thing. Uh, Things which can easily be uh, sustained and maintained in UK law, that's the first category. The second will be things that need tweaking, where, for example, they depend on European processes, EU processes, or EU institutions. Uh, Medicines and uh, the patent agency, for example, uh, are instances of that. And third, areas in which uh, there could be wholesale change or where serious new provision has to be made. And an obvious example there is agriculture and fisheries. Now, there is the uh, tripartite Uh, problem or challenge. But what may happen, and I think unless Parliament is really quite muscular on its own behalf, will happen, is that a great deal of the activity will be in the form of delegated legislation, Mm. for the purpose of which ministers will have to be given really quite extensive powers. Henry VIII's powers. Henry VIII powers, or... or Perhaps we ought to explain what a Henry VIII power is. Indeed, yes. A a pure Henry VIII power is a power in delegated legislation which allows a minister to amend or repeal primary legislation. And, and, you know, this is heavy-duty stuff Mm. because we're talking about uh, uh, orders or regulations in secondary delegated legislation, statutory instruments, which allow ministers to overturn what has been passed by both houses and assented to by the Crown. Uh, so that, that is, a Henry VIII power is really quite a significant one. And I don't think that there is sufficiently widespread understanding and knowledge of what that can mean in terms of power for the executive, which can uh, not exactly override parliamentary power, because normally there is a, a motion to approve a Henry VIII, the use of a Henry VIII power has to be put down, but it shifts the balance potentially Quite sharply. And one only has to reduce this argument ad absurdum, doesn't one, to realise that it does, if you pass an important piece of primary legislation and you give in that, uh, even subsequently, in a further piece of uh, uh, subsidiary legislation, the government the power to alter that primary legislation, that this does reduce the capacity of Parliament to... Uh, um, to control the executive, but also, but in practical terms, it seems to me, with such a huge volume of secondary legislation, they can slip things under the radar quite easily. Well, certainly, in terms of the first part of what you were saying, the hazard is actually greater than that, because many Henry VIII powers refer not just to the act under which they're granted, but to any act. Yes. 
So, in fact, ministerial uh, action can go outside the curtilage of the Act, which actually granted the Henry VIII powers. I think that there is a, 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 a practical problem which is going to come from the sheer difficulty of negotiating quite so much, quite so quickly. After the end of March, two years is going to seem like about 20 minutes to the negotiators. And because I think there is a a feeling that all these things are nice little modules. You're going to have a nice little module about employment law, a nice little module about environmental protection and clean beaches and all that. And each of these can be tied up in neat parcels and then they can be subject to some sort of parliamentary approval. Now, of course, you know and I know that negotiation isn't like that. You are negotiating on area A and you think you've reached a conclusion. But the negotiators on the other side of the table say, well, I'm terribly sorry, I'm not going to agree to that until we've got area Z or area T sorted out. Now, the practical result of that is that all of that material is going to be steadily moving to the right. So it's going to be moving to later in the two-year period. And the more it does that, the less time there's going to be for parliamentary consideration and the greater pressure there will be for this sort of uh, extensive ministerial uh, fiat, in effect. So what effect do you think this might have on the dicey theory of, of, of parliamentary sovereignty? Because, and also as a writer to it, um, our friend uh, Michael Gallagher, uh, now at, at Nuffield, has written, a, a, I think, a very interesting piece about what happens to repatriated powers. Do they stay in Whitehall or do you devolve them? And that must have a knock-on effect on parliamentary powers and scrutiny and sovereignty as well, doesn't it? Uh, it certainly will, and indeed it was on the, the tip of my tongue to say what happens to this, um, uh, the, 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 the great <laughs> march, or perhaps we might also say, say retreat from Brussels of all these powers which, on which both central government and devolved governments and legislatures might feel that they have a, a lean. Um, in terms of does the dicey ideal persist? Of course, ministers would say, yes, yes. it will persist, because we're not doing anything that we're not allowed to do by Parliament. So that means that the rubbing point is how alert and how tough is Parliament on constraining the powers which it gives to ministers, both in terms of what is delegated, but also subject to what parliamentary scrutiny that delegation is. Now, to come on to the second part of what you were saying in terms of the uh, repatriation of powers, there is a very strong wish, I mean, to take Wales, for example, I was talking to some people yesterday who are very much involved in this, there is a strong wish for those powers to go straight from Brussels mm. to Cardiff without any intermediary. Now, I can't think that the UK government is going to be very <laughs> happy with that. Happy with it, no. So I think that's going to pose, as well as all the... I mean, the radar is going to be so cluttered, as well as all the uh, things coming back which will be UK issues, the devolution issues, I think, are going to be uh, really quite a complicating factor. In the world where the British Constitution has seen extraordinary um, 
changes, some of us might say, piled in an ad hoc manner, one on the other, perhaps not always referring to the effects they will have on each other, let alone the rest of us. Um, do you think um, that also in this is a broader question, apart from the practicalities you describe, um, Parliament has increasingly been thought to be in, um, rather distant from the people it was supposed to be representing and serving. Uh, even if we didn't have, if we hadn't joined the European Union in the first place, let alone repatriated and left, uh, do you think that uh, we would have anyway been talking about the need to reform our parliamentary institutions? Uh, and if that hasn't gone away, of course, what makes our present situation even more complicated is that perhaps we ought to be thinking about not only the practical effects of Brexit, but also how the institutions themselves are going to be more responsive to their electorates. Absolutely. Um, you use the word piled for uh, the uh, <laughs> accretion of these constitutional changes. Of course, piled argues some sort of plan and forethought. <laughs> as if you're making a dry and stone wall. More than I should. <laughs> I, I would say dropped. <laughs> and indeed, in my maiden speech in the Lords, uh, I expressed a real concern that these things were happening one by one as responses to individual political problems or uh, challenges, mm -hmm. and that there was no holistic view being taken of where we were heading. I think that's nowhere truer than of devolution, which we might come back to in, in just a moment. In terms of what Parliament is going to do, how it's seen, how effective it is, um, at the moment, of course, one of the great um, givens of uh, the House of Commons is not operating. The government is not being sufficiently challenged by the opposition. There is a major sub-opposition in the shape of the SNP, but, of course, their focus is a very particular one, and it doesn't provide a UK-wide opposition. Now, as we go through the Brexit process, I think unless the, uh, uh, the official opposition get their act together, then we collectively are going to be the losers because the government won't be subject to sufficient challenge. And they so easily become extraordinarily complacent. Don't they? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the... the, the, the of all <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Uh, all executives are overmighty. <laughs> that's, the, that's the default setting. But one of the things I think that Parliament, and again, this comes back to what we were talking about a moment ago about ministerial power. What I would like to see is in this process of repatriation, of taking back control, if you wish, uh, that... It isn't simply a private conversation between the executive and parliament. This is going to affect people's lives and livelihoods in profound ways that, uh, I have to say, probably many people did not think about when they were voting on the 23rd of June last year. And I'm thinking, living in Herefordshire, close to the Welsh border, uh, if sheep farmers were voting leave, I don't know what on earth they thought they would be doing in two or three years' time. So that's what I mean about affecting livelihoods. But I think the practical challenge for Parliament 
is going to be involving those people in the process. And I would say that evidence-based scrutiny of what government is doing, in other words, where through a select committee process or whatever you uh, care to call it, Mm -hmm. uh, you actually draw on the opinions of people who are going to be affected, who really know about the sector, who are, of course, expert became a dirty word during the (laughs) referendum campaign, but really know what they're talking about. And I think if Parliament can involve people in that way in this staggeringly complex and important process, then Parliament will do itself a great favour. That's very interesting. I I ought to come clean, Robert. I've always been a keen lever and, uh, in fact, voted no in 75. So um, I I think um, you're aware of that. I ought to make that plain. But I'm not going to fight the last war. What I do think is very interesting, therefore, is this question of getting people Parliament represents closer to the institutions, which are absolutely key to them. So in... To take your point, is there also scope, apart from much more open select committee procedures, and I think we've made a bit of progress on this. A great deal, yes. Uh, Anyway, Uh, but for instance, in the way you approach the preparation and um, the debate about legislation, could we have, for instance, make much more than we already do over uh, what you might call a select committee procedure for legislation either before second reading or after? Well, I must uh, make a declaration as well, or possibly an advertisement, in that I'm delivering the Statute Law Society annual lecture next Tuesday, um, and my subject is, why is there so much bad legislation? So how, how so this is opposite. an opportunity for you to give a trailer for your speech. <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. And you're quite right. Uh, draft bills, I think, really do offer the opportunity of better legislation. There is uh, an old, um, it's a fallacy, really. Everybody thinks that bills are draft legislation. Well, of course, they're not. They are word for word what the government of the day wants to see on the statute yeah. book. And when, and you've been in the higher reaches of government, you know perfectly well, when you've been through all the toing and froing between departments and the uh, instructions to parliamentary council and cabinet committee and cabinet and the parliamentary business committee of the cabinet, you feel that by the time the bill has come to be introduced that that's game over. And, of course, from the parliamentary point of view, that's the first whistle of the game, not the last. And so uh, certainly draft bills, I think, offer a a way of, again, as I say, bringing in the people who are going to be affected and producing better legislation at the end of the process. Well, it does, what you've just said, does evoke horrific memories because, uh, obviously, jobs I had, some of them... um, involved trying to cooperate with our dear friend Tony Newton over business management in the 90s, which is was not an easy time for, to be a Tory minister. Uh, but the number of times that the original reasonable clarity, which you occasionally find for the intention to legislate and the policy, uh, inevitably, if it was controversial, it um, was subject to controversy within government. So the clarity was lost in the inevitable compromises that Ledge Committee used to uh, have to indulge in. Um, And it also meant there was delay. And very often, the admirable people uh, who were the Parliamentary Council drafting the bill uh, didn't get instructions from the bill from the Parliamentary Department of the Secretary of State concerned 
till very, very late in the day. And I always used to say to them, wouldn't it be better if you dropped your pride for a moment and say, this can't be done properly, rather than we always produce a bill? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what you said is, I think, I bet it's still true. It particularly must be true when you look at some of the Constitution, getting back to constitutional matter, constitutional legislation that was produced from 1997 onwards. Think of the Welsh Bill, which I think in the House of Commons received the most cursory examination before it came to their lordships. Yes. Um, and was, as a result, a good example of uh, how rotten some of this legislation was. I think you've uh, put your finger on it. Uh, there's a great temptation. People say, oh, this legislation is badly drafted. And, of course, with some very rare exceptions, legislation is not badly drafted. Parliamentary Council do a fantastic job, perhaps, as you hint, uh, too ambitious a job in terms of delivering within timescales, but a fantastic job in putting down in uh, legislative terms what is sought to be achieved and sometimes, of course, having to overcomplicate that because ministers quite like legislation to be judge-proof. But the real problem is nine times out of ten it is either because the instructions from departments mm. seek to get them to do something that is practically impossible <laughs> or a lack of coordination in yes. early preparation of legislation means that the messages are mixed and changing yes. and that contributes to delay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the result is you get half-cooked legislation coming through. So your point about... Uh, using all sorts of consultative processes and rather rigorous ones like select committee ones at certain stages in, in the preparation and consideration of legislation would make a practical difference? I think it would. It, of course, uh, I'm sure within government people would say, well, there's a terrific demand. If you're talking about demand on parliamentary council, draft bills increase that demand yeah. because they actually have to draft something and really draft something and then uh, deal with it again after it's been through that process. But the ability to carry over bills from one session to the next ought to mean mm -hmm. that uh, the time available is much longer. Mm -hmm. And uh, governments, of course, you know better than I, but governments are always in a hurry. And in some ways, uh, there has got to be, there's got to be a mind shift. Uh, if you want good legislation, you can't really do it quickly. Exactly. Yeah. There is a, a parallel, possibly, to the glasses of wine that are in front of us at the moment. <laughs> you can't make good wine quickly. <laughs> Robert, it, it, these are apparently rather dry, dusty, technical questions. But I do think that they're extraordinarily important ones, aren't they? Because the thing about um, legislation and uh, public administration is that it's quite boring, it's detailed, and the, the sort of so-called glamour parts of politics aren't really what make it work. Yet we live in an age where uh, there's a certain amount of instant gratification, we communicate with 140 characters. How do we square the circle of the immediacy and the demands for immediacy of the modern age with what you and I agree needs to be the carefully considered rather more deliberate approach which make our parliamentary or would make our parliamentary institutions effective. 
desperately difficult, could be solved very quickly if there was a change in the political mindset. If uh, senior ministers were prepared to say, look, this is not um, an instant fix. Uh, I remember when I was clerk of legislation in the House of Commons that uh, more than once uh, a, a member of the cabinet said to me, this bill is going to send a message. And I would say, <laughs> legislation, that's not what bills are for. Bills are there to change the law to the extent and only to the extent that is necessary to achieve your political yeah. objectives. But I think that there is a, a feeling that bills do send or should send messages about political intent. I think also that there is quite a macho, and I'm making, I'm applying macho to both male and female senior ministers here. There is a, a, a macho interpretation of getting your bill through. Yes. It is part of your, um, it, it's your political campaign ribbons, as it were. And that mindset will need changing. And it's an odd thing, because in this country, over many, many decades, centuries even, one of the things we've done really well is administration. And having administered a fifth of the globe or more mm. in times past, I think we're less, or we value less, getting it right, making things mm. work. And if it may just be, uh, you said 140 characters, but well, perhaps it is, the Twitterati are, are, are wanting quicker results yeah. and headlines, and certainly the other side of the Atlantic, we've seen quite a bit of that <laughs> recently. But um, it is that mindset that needs to change. And I think the central thing in changing it is that the law affects the citizen. This is, when you change the law, you are changing what your people have to do, sometimes under threat of what might be criminal offences that mm. are created, sometimes having to change their, the way that they do their business quite fundamentally. And I think, and it may be a good thing, I think it probably will be a good thing, that a lot of these will come into a new prominence when we look afresh at some of these things that we're taking back from the EU. Yeah, so it is an opportunity, potentially. But it also means, going back to our uh, question about how we manage, what we devolve to the devolved parliaments, but also what the future relationship between the what used to be called the imperial parliament and the rest, how that's going to develop uh, in the light of Brexit. And that is a... That seems to me to be almost the trickiest thing that we face in practical terms. Well, I think it is something which the um, initiative which you took and with which both of us and others have been involved yeah. in recent months will have a real part to play because uh, there will be centrifugal forces that I think will increase in the next couple of years. Everybody, of course, is looking at a a time window of two years, I think it'll be five years at least mm -hmm. before we see a semblance of normality coming into all this. But in terms of what is kept, what is devolved, what passes through the UK central government on its way to devolved administrations, uh, these will be potentially highly contentious yeah. issues. Yeah. And if one approaches this in the way that, that our group has, uh, in terms of bottom-up, not top-down, mm -hmm. so that you don't have imperial condescension from the centre, but you allow the constituent parts to take a, a rational and considered, not a competitive, but a considered view about 
its subsidiarity, if I can use that European <laughs> word, what can best be done by them and what can best be done by, and again to use a rather um, sensitive phrase, pooled sovereignty <laughs> within the UK, then that is going to be quite a, a useful and practical and I would say almost invaluable way yes. of approaching some of the problems that are coming down the track. It, it, it's quite timely, all this, isn't it? Because uh, the Cameron government view, and as far as I know, the May government view still is, give the present arrangements time to work and settle down. Don't ruck the boat. You'll only be um, uh, reviving arguments which we hope the reflection of time will put to bed. Uh, I think perhaps what you and I are worried about is <coughs> that... Um, not only is the much of the legislation unworkable, I think of the uh, Scotland Act and its, I thought, wholly unintelligible financial memorandum, uh, um, which seems to envisage failure uh, as virtual certainty. Um, but also it enables people who want to break up the kingdom to maintain the initiative. And I do worry that if there is another referendum in Scotland, which is entirely possible, uh, that um, Project Fear on behalf of us unionists won't cut the mustard anymore. And perhaps what we need is to say, well, perhaps there is a new constitutional settlement we can all agree to, uh, as you say, from bottom up, which is after all the zeitgeist now, rather than top down and we can agree on what you should do in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and in England and its regions, which is of course a great difficulty. Um, and uh, that the, when we agree that, then also the centre will do the rest and maybe that is a way forward. Um, worries me that uh, the nature of government's approach so far has um, only encouraged the initiative to keep coming from the other side. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, like you, I'm not convinced by the argument that uh, somehow all these disparate parts of constitutional arrangements will come right if you only give them time to settle down. I think one can employ a metaphor here. It's a bit like getting bit worried about your car and you take it into the garage and there's a lot of tooth sucking and so on. <laughs> and uh, the chap then says, well, Gov, um, I, I, I'm not too sure about your brakes. And you then say, well, that's fine. I'm not going to worry about that this morning. I'll come back to you if I have a problem. Yeah, and by then, of course, you'll probably run slap into a brick wall. And so I think a great deal more, um, uh, I don't think telepathy is required to see the sorts of problems that may arise. One of them, of course, and we'll know more about this in, in the relatively near future, will be Nicola Sturgeon's attitude to a, a new referendum. The idea, and of course here, it is interesting how that centrifugal force and Brexit are playing together, because were she to win a referendum, it's absolutely clear, and I think will be even clearer after UK exit, that Scotland would have to apply afresh for membership of the European Union. And a condition, assuming that the euro has not imploded by yeah. then, a condition would be accepting the euro. 
Uh, and of course, as you know and I know, one of the uh, phrases which uh, I'm sure uh, afflicts the dreams or the nightmares of uh, the SNP is uh, the phrase full fiscal autonomy and how sustainable that might be depending on what the oil price is. So, um, and we know that that is not something you or I would want to rely on if we were Mrs. Sturgeon. Equally, I suppose, in parenthesis, she would be quite courageous to assume that the Spaniards, for instance, would um, allow Scotland to join, because they, there's a read across to Catalonia here, isn't there? A very powerful one, and not only there, but in, in Belgium. Yes, um, and uh, in Italy, uh, absolutely Corsica in France. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, and um, those are, are are problems which would seem to the member states concerned greater in prospect, possibly than in practice. But nevertheless, yeah. it would be the prospect which dictated their negotiating stance. So I think it is very important if there is a, a credible Plan B. And I think the sort of approach that we've been talking about is a credible plan B. Uh, it's something that could conceivably get Nicola Sturgeon down from the, the tree in which she has climbed quite high. Yeah, so any sensible unionist uh, campaigning for the preservation of the union would certainly make the economic arguments, uh, which are powerful, we know. But we'd also say, uh, well, we think we're stronger together and this is a way of making sure we are and making a case for the union rather than merely against separation. I think that could be a very powerful uh, set of motivations because there will be people seeing whether they voted remain or whether they voted leave, they will see the effect of us leaving one sort of union. Yeah. And that can be overlain on the sort of things that one would lose leaving a different sort of union, yes. but one in which we all speak the, the, the same language. I mean, I hesitate now as a, as a Welshman to say that we, we all speak the same language, but nevertheless, you know what I mean. Where the, there where, is the a frank <laughs> where the shared culture and tradition yes. is quite so close and where it has quite such a powerful identity. Then there is also um, the question of England, isn't there? Uh, it, it is, whatever it is, 85% of the population of the United Kingdom. Uh, the um, administration, local government of England is at least, well, it's in flux, and certainly it's subject to much debate. How England played into this would also be extraordinarily important, because I think there's a strong feeling in parts of England as well as that Scots wants good riddance. And uh, Mrs Sturgeon would find that a useful a useful aid to aim on Yes. I think England, uh, with 85-ish percent of GNI, as well as 85 or so yeah. percent of the population, is uh, it's a very big key to unlock this particular door. And how uh, effective devolution within England can be achieved is... Uh, there are a set of very difficult questions there, whether it is regional, whether you can accept still uh, a great asymmetry mm-hmm. between the largest of the four constituent nations or, or not, whether you need to moderate that in some subdividing way. But uh, as you say, I mean, the prospects there are some that uh, Mrs. Sturgeon might actually find quite attractive. All of this makes me into something more of a dangerous radical than perhaps I've been used to thinking of myself as. 
Uh, you, of course, have always had a strong radical streak. I know, Robert. Uh, but um, what it does perhaps imply is that whatever side you were on in the devolution debates or in the uh, Brexit debate, that, uh, to use the eternal cliché, the world is changing and changing very radically if we are going to have institutions that command the support and affection of the people they represent, we probably do need to change their relationship with the people, with the constituent parts of the kingdom, and also the ways in which those institutions do their business. Um, And perhaps we ought to address those questions as a matter of some urgency. Well, as a fellow radical, I couldn't agree, <laughs> couldn't agree with you more, because if we don't, I think we will uh, regret at long leisure. Yes, and now is an opportunity when everything is in flux, and these opportunities sometimes go away, as perhaps the Austrians found in 1848. <laughs> yes, indeed. Another radical, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, tectonic plates, uh, that's, uh, you know, they, they, that, that's joined a lot of the... Uh, um, uh, a, a lot of the uh, um, sort of rather predictable vocabulary. <laughs> but uh, if you can actually see some of these things when... Uh, let me use a... a where there is... Uh, kinetic uh, friction yeah. rather than static friction, then you're much, much more likely to uh, to achieve your end. Well, Robert, um, thank you for coming. Um, I've hugely enjoyed the conversation, well lubricate, lubricated by Terry. Um, and um, I wonder whether, if you also enjoyed it, whether we might think of reconvening that um, occasional intervals to explore perhaps some of the things we covered today in the light of events as they unfold. I should be delighted to do so. And uh, as I said earlier, it's been a great pleasure to do this in such convivial circumstances. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I hope you enjoyed the inaugural Chairman of Reactions podcast. I hope you'll join us again. My thanks again to uh, Robert Liz Vane for his expert and elegant exposition of some of the difficulties that uh, we are going to confront and the opportunities we enjoy. Uh, My sincere thanks go to 67 Pall Mall for their extraordinary hospitality. I think if there's anything that's going to bring me back, it's Terry and his libations. Uh, I hope that you're already a fan of reaction, that you will tell your friends about what we do, uh, that you will uh, subscribe to uh, our new uh, subscription service, uh, a gift, I think you'll agree, at 75p. Uh, And uh, we look forward to welcoming you uh, both online and in our podcasts in the future.